Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look back on an eventful 2021 for budget and economic policy, and what it all means for the policy debates of 2022. Our discussion features an all-star panel of Concord Coalition experts, including Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, National Field Director Phil Smith, Communications Director Av Harris, and Deputy Director Chris Culligan. Well, you know, we knew this was going to be a big year for budget and uh, economic policy. A new administration took office on January 20th, uh, already facing a struggling economy, a global pandemic and uh, deep political divisions. A lot happened over the course of 2021. uh, But as the year draws to a close, it's apparent that much of 2022 will be devoted to a substantial agenda of unfinished business left over from 2021. And there will be new challenges, uh, you know, from the stubbornly high inflation that we've been experiencing to the rapidly spreading Omicron variant. Looking ahead, Congress uh, does still have some, uh, some things that they need to do relative to appropriations bills. They're going to have to pass those by mid-February to avoid another uh, possibility of a government shutdown. And of course, the Build Back Better Act, which passed the House, is still looming in the Senate, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen there. So uh, let's turn our attention to the panel and plunge right in. For me, what was actually most surprising in a way was that there was a commitment to pay for major new initiatives. I mean, I know that that was said, that, that that was during the campaign, it was said, and it was said in the lead up to the legislation that was proposed. But uh, I was very uh, leery of that, uh, that I thought at some point the MMT theory would kick in and people, that's modern monetary theory, would kick in and people would say, you know, really, we don't need to find any offsets here. All this stuff is good stuff and we can just keep printing money. And uh, really, we at the Concord Coalition certainly had some criticisms about the pay-fors and whether they were adequate or legitimate. But the commitment has remained, aside from the first COVID relief bill, which was an emergency bill. So, um, you know, you sometimes suspend pay-fors in that atmosphere. But... um, but that commitment has stayed, and, and I hope it does. So let's see. What did you find surprising, Tori? <laughs> so I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to take two. I have two answers to this question. The first uh, is sort of a counterpoint to your surprise development of 2022 or 21. And my surprise is that so much of the Republican tax cut in 2017 survived contact with an all-Democratic 
Congress and White House. Um, as we're negotiating, we're still negotiating this Build Back Better. It is stunning to me that not a single Democrat voted for that bill in 2017. I surely thought that in the desire for, for pay fors uh, for this, this next installment uh, of the president's agenda, that they'd be rolling back uh, some of those tax cuts. And it is surprising to me that we are not talking about a rate increase on corporations, that we're not talking about some of these these other like the the the, the rate cuts for high income individuals and things like that. Instead, we're talking about these sort of obscure things that sort of hide in, in, in the corner over here and hide over the corner over there and things that are really hard to explain. So people can't really get too upset about them. That is number one for me is this, how much of the, the Republican tax cut in 2017 is surviving contact with this with this Congress. The second is that I'm a child of the Senate. Um, I've spent 16 years in the Senate learning all of its arcane budget rules, uh, including the bird rule and reconciliation and the role of the parliamentarian. And that stuff is really, really hard to explain, uh, even to sitting members of the Senate. It is surprising to me. And it's also uh, I, something that I, I cheerlead is how much uh, knowledge of the bird rule reconciliation and the role of the parliamentarian has made it into the, the public sphere. The fact that John Q. Public on the street, you know, has heard perhaps of, of, of the bird rule or reconciliation and 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 how much of that actually made news this year was surprising to me because it is so much inside baseball and it is so hard to explain to individuals. But when you when you talk about, you know, when the when the parliamentarian played a significant role in putting the kibosh on an increase in the the, the minimum wage in the, the covid relief bill earlier this year and how much the parliamentarian is playing a role in terms of immigration reform in the current build back better agenda. Um, it's just amazing to me that how much that office and that budget policy and reconciliation and the rules of and bird rule are, are front and center in the public debate. Well, you know, Tori, I think you weren't the only one to be surprised at the uh, lack of attention to the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, there are certainly a lot of Democrats that thought that there perhaps should have been more aggressive uh, in that regard. And who knows, maybe they will at some point. Um, Phil, what uh, anything stand out for you? 2021 was a really long year. And if you go all the way back to the very beginning, I think one of the biggest surprises that led to lots of budget and policy developments throughout the year was that something, something that happened here in my home state of Georgia on January the 5th uh, of that year? Because on January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and for most of the day on the 5th, Mitch McConnell had to have thought that he was going to be the majority leader <laughs> during this year. And uh, my state of Georgia had an unusual circumstance where we, uh, where we had election for two Senate seats at the same time. And it was a really tall order for Democrats to win both of those seats. And lo and behold, they did. And we were left with this 50-50 Senate that has left a year long worth of Tory talking about bird baths and parliamentarian rulings and all sorts of things. It's just been fascinating. Steve, what about you? What, uh, what was the most uh, surprising development from in 2021? So I'm, I'm going to put my economist hat on. And so a lot of people had been predicting an outbreak of inflation not an outbreak of COVID, but an outbreak of inflation. <laughs> and by, by mid-year, we finally began to see the signs uh, that inflation was ticking up. Um, you know, I, I come from some, the, old, the old school that, that, that the monetary policy matters and had been surprised as much as any of the critics 
that inflation had been more or less maintained, uh, uh, contained uh, until this year. Uh, a lot of people were predicting inflation, you know, for the past several years. And of course, you know, I guess they always say a broken clock is right twice a day. And so you could attribute it to that and just say, well, yeah, if, if Chicken Little says the sky is going to fall, maybe one day it will and he'll be right. But uh, no, I, I think that, that on the economy side, we're, we've, we've now seen perhaps a, a turning point and the Fed is going to be fighting a defensive battle probably throughout the next year to, uh, to get inflation expectations back down uh, and not see a, a continuation of this for the next couple of years. Yeah, and that's something that we really haven't had on the, ta- on the policy agenda for a long time is rising inflation. Some of us who are old enough to remember um, rising inflation from prior years uh, can remember that it is very painful to get rid of once it takes hold. So uh, we'll have to see. Chris, what was the most surprising budget development for you? You stole my thunder a little bit because that was I was kind of thinking in terms of the, uh, the argument over uh, the whole idea of paying for what you're actually proposing. Uh, but, uh, the, to me, the, the kind of the nuance in that was that we didn't see anybody other than them. I mean, the Democrats were just kind of, you know, eating their own in this case, they just kept fighting with each other. Republicans didn't even weigh in because they didn't feel like they had to. There was no pay fors that were going to uh, that were going to satisfy uh, Republicans in the uh, in the House or the Senate uh, to vote for these uh, these things. So it became this uh, this inter party battle uh, all about pay fors and it somewhat was refreshing to me to hear the battle and to see who won. And so far, the surprising part is, as it was, I think, to you, as you mentioned, that, uh, you know, that so far the, 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 the prevailing point of view is that these things do need to have pay for us and we need to figure out a way to do that. And whether, as you said, we're not necessarily, uh, sure that all of them are legit in terms of being able to to pass the you know kind of the the test of credibility but at least they're talking about it so that's yeah yeah, that's where i stand and to see that the that was all basically inside the party that they were fighting about it is uh you know it is it, it is refreshing and uh i guess we shouldn't say it's surprising since that's what we advocate for but Boy, leading up to it, there was a lot of political pressure on, um, you know, why do we have to pay for these things? And, mm-hmm. and you know, the administration came down on the side of, yes, we do need to pay for these things. And right. uh, what what happens in 2022? There's a lot of stuff still on the agenda that's not finished, but so mm-hmm. we'll see. Um, Av uh, is the most recent uh, <laughs> member of the uh, Concord Coalition staff and our communications director. What uh, struck you as the most surprising development? So I want to piggyback off of what Chris just said, because I was thinking along the same lines. There were, there were two things uh, that, that were a surprise, but the fact that they're a surprise, I think, kind of shows us where we are uh, mm-hmm. politically and how far askew I think we've gone um, you know, from recent years. So uh, the, the one surprise, which I think was a good surprise, 
Um, and maybe it shouldn't have been such a surprise, but but it was the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, that the you know it passed in the Senate with I think sixty nine votes, but the fact that it held in the House that there were enough Republicans to pass. Um, because actually, I think Speaker Pelosi needed some Republicans to actually pass it because some of the progressives ended up voting against it. But the fact that you got a real uh, bipartisan piece of legislation on something that really matters, that, that I think can impact the economy for many, many years to come, and that um, that that it was, uh, you know, people can argue both ways, but that that paying for it and making sure that it didn't add to the debt too much uh, was, was important. So, um, in, in a lot of ways, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is something that Congress used to do uh, all the time. But we've gotten so far away from that in the last decade or so um, that it was really refreshing um, and surprising for me because I tend to be a bit of a cynic about these things. And I just had this foreboding feeling that we, I just I can't believe it's going to pass until it actually does. So the fact that it did, I thought that was uh you know, was uh, was was a good surprise, I think, for the country. And I think it shows a bit of a roadmap for how, you know, Biden as president can actually get some things done working with McConnell if he picks the right things, um, you know, and, and there can be these bipartisan coalitions that get things done. So I think in general, it's a good model. And I think that allows some of the um, moderates in both parties to say, well, if we worked on this, maybe we can work on that. Now, it doesn't really help that the the Trump faction in the House is going after their own members, uh, the Republicans who ended up voting for um, the infrastructure bill, because I think it's going to make them think twice about doing something like that, especially in an, in an election year. Um, but I still think that it, it's a sign for others who have ideas with with members of the other party that they can actually step forward and do something um, and and make some meaningful impact. They have the right person in the White House for that. So that's one thing. And then just very quickly, piggybacking off of what Chris just said, um, I was surprised, like many, many others were, that Senator Manchin didn't um, cave to some of the pressure that mm. he was getting um, and and stuck to his guns on, um, on, on the fiscal impact and, and the, some of the budget gimmicks that the Democrats were using in order to show the price tag of the Build Back Better bill as lower than it actually was. And so the fact that he stuck to those guns means that if we're going to get a Build Back Better bill in 2022, it's going to be something that is more paid for, might be less things paid for for longer periods of time, which I think is fiscally better. So, you know, prudent fiscal policy seems to have won out, which is an enormous surprise considering what Congress has been doing for the last 15 or 20 years, where basically chucking any kind of fiscal responsibility out the window. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, 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 for a cynic like me, I see those two developments as actually um, uh, cause for optimism. Well, uh we're surprisingly cheery at the uh, at this, uh, and <laughs> well, it is kind of interesting that uh, we we all seem pleasantly surprised that there's a commitment to uh, the paying for things, uh, rhetorically anyway, has has held, and that there was a major bipartisan legislative accomplishment, which actually was huge. I mean, when you think of the size of that bill, uh, and the fact that it did have bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate, um, is. Um, Really, a, a, a couple of things. So, a, a couple of things that, that bode well. 
So let me ask, uh, and and maybe kind of uh, quick answers here. Uh, looking ahead to 2022, what makes us the most? Uh, what are we most concerned about for 2022? And what uh, grounds for optimism do we see? And uh, Phil, let me start with you on that one. Sure. I think uh, for 2022, the the concern might be um, the continued and somewhat growing Santa Claus syndrome that we see out there. Um, uh, even though you know we're pleased that the president and other adults in the room haven't signed on to MMT, it does seem to be growing. And I, and I think that politicians in the past, you know, they've always pandered to voters. You remember Paul Sangas used to say, don't be a pander bear. But I think they've kind of devolved into just outright disinformation now instead of just pandering. And I think it poses a, a pretty big challenge to us, if not a threat to the mission of the Concord Coalition, because what we do is educate people about fiscal policy. And we spend so much time now on defense, simply extinguishing myths that we really don't have as much time to talk about, you know, go on the offense and talk about solutions. And so I think that's, that's the downside, the upside. Um, we're still here <laughs> despite all that's happened. Uh, and, you know, and despite flirting with the, with many fiscal cliffs, we haven't gone over a fiscal cliff, uh, which means we still have an, short but undetermined amount of time left to fix some of the unsustainable problems uh, that we talk about. Um, and there's still some good people out there doing good work, right? We have the Concord Coalition. We have organizations like the, Bipart uh, the BPC, uh, Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, CRFB, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, uh, the Peterson Foundation. There's still good groups out there doing good work. We have unfortunately lost some groups out there, you know, in the past, some groups that used to be more uh, fiscally oriented have kind of turned into like campaign organizations now. But for the most part, there's still some good work out there, some some people doing some good work. So I hope that we'll be able to to get beyond the pandemic and and, and get to work on these issues. Steve, we were just talking about how we were pleasantly surprised uh, that that the Congress and the administration seem to be uh, sticking to their pledge of of paying for their proposals. Uh, and, and I think at the 30,000 foot level, that really looks good. And that is an, a note, uh, a reason for optimism. But when you start digging down into the actual proposals and you realize that the way they were able to do that is essentially by sunsetting most of the things that they want to do. And so, you know, we've, this is a theme we've talked about all year and, and essentially, you know, there is the, the, the problem that, you're pressured into doing something you don't want to do. And so you kind of, you know, I don't want to use the word cheat, but you kind of cheat. I mean, you know, they, they, they couldn't find enough taxes to pay for their spending. And so they said, well, okay, well, we'll just do a year of spending, but, but we promise we'll come back and do it later. And it sort of raises the whole issue that if you can't figure out how to pay for it now, why should we believe that you're going to figure out how to pay for it later? And so, you know, my, I guess my cause for pessimism is that, you know, even if the Build Back Better passes and, you know, they have the sunsets and they manage to pay for a few temporary provisions, what's going to happen, you know, in 2023 when these things start, or 24, when these things start sunsetting? And will they be able to stick to their guns and actually come up with more pay-fors? Or will they try to, try to spend money without paying for it. And so that's, that's always a cause for concern. 
Well, um, we're going to leave it there for our first segment uh, and pick it up uh, after these short messages. You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Stick with us. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by a cast of thousands, or at least uh, the Concord Coalition staff is uh, joining me for a review of 2021 and a look ahead at 2022 on fiscal and economic policy. Uh, so uh, in this segment, we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round. So everybody get your, your brief answers ready here. Uh, I'm going to start with this one. Will the, will the Build Back Better Act pass in some form? Phil, let me start with you. Like sands through the hourglass. Uh, yes, it will, <laughs> but not in the same form, not barely even in the same recognizable form as the first draft. Okay. Tori, what do you think? I agree with Phil. Yes, a, a, a version of BBBA will pass. It's absolutely essential for the Democrats in, in making an argument for their uh, election in 2022. Well, I agree with that. So it's unanimous and we don't need to get opinions from anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Steve, um, as our chief economist, I ask you this big question and everybody at the Fed is awaiting your answer. Will, infla <laughs> will inflation come down in 2022? Well, <laughs> I, I kind of like the quote. It's really hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, but I, but I, will, I, will, I will make a prediction nonetheless. Um, I, I don't think that they will contain inflation that quickly. I mean, if you look historically, once inflation gets out of hand, it takes a little longer to get it under control. We, we could see elevated inflation into 2023. Let me just ask you a bonus question. Uh, will the Fed start raising interest rates in 2022? Uh, yes, they will. They will. You know, they're already dialing back their uh, their bond buying program, and uh, they will have to uh, to raise interest rates, no no doubt, next year. Yes. Aside from inflation and the Build Back Better Act, one thing that's hanging over the economy and the entire legislative agenda is, of course. Uh, COVID. The, we're into our third year now with the uh, pandemic and a new variant, making it very difficult to make plans for just about anything. Uh, if you've had a great deal of experience with this going back to the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, mm -hmm. working for the health department in Connecticut. So I, I turn to you as our pseudo epidemiologist and uh, <laughs> prognosticator on this. Uh, are we going to need another round of COVID relief? That's a really tough question to answer. And my short answer is I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because there's already been trillions of dollars in relief that's already been shoveled out the door. I mean, you think about, you know, what is that relief for? You know, what would it pay for, right? You know, businesses that have lost revenue, people who have been out of work. Um, now we're, like you said, we're, we're two years into this pandemic and we have figured out how to work, continue to work, and you know, do it safely when there are opportunities to work remotely. The, the biggest problem, um, and this is going to be the one people are going to wrestle with, obviously, you've heard President Biden say, we're not going back to lockdowns. In Europe, you, you have some countries that are going back to lockdowns. I don't think we're going to do that. 
But the, the biggest problem is that we are stalled in our efforts to get people vaccinated because a second round of vaccination isn't enough with this Omicron variant. You need a booster. And the booster has efficacy against um, this new variant, but not, you know, it's, it's, it's not as effective as, as the two shots originally were against the original strain of COVID. So if we continue to have a large part of the population that isn't getting vaccinated to the level of where it needs to be, then more people are going to be sick, more people are going to be out of work. But I'm not sure where the relief would go. States in the beginning set up all kinds of extra hospitalization. And now we're seeing, especially here in the Northeast, we're seeing National Guard people being deployed to to, to set up um, extra capacity for hospitalization. And largely the people that are hospitalized are those that have either not been vaccinated at all, or maybe they had one shot and didn't get the rest of their vaccinations. So I'm just not sure what more relief would go to pay for. Um, But we're still going to have a problem with COVID. Look at what happened to the airline industry over the holidays. Uh, Chris, uh, what are what are your thoughts on that? I will just say that there will be some form of COVID relief because there will be pressure from certain states that do have uh, emergency levels of care that they're going to have to uh, uh, to deal with, uh, that there will be some push and the pressure will be strong enough that there will be something. And uh, um, probably it's not going to be, it's not gonna be a big package of COVID relief, but it will be part of some other emergency bill uh, at some point. It's, uh, you're already seeing some rumblings in that regard from the restaurant industry and mm-hmm. I'm sure the uh, hospitality industry and the, the, the airline industry. Yeah. And, and I, think it, I think the answer does depend a great deal on the future of the Omicron variant. If it goes down as quickly as it is spiking up right now, perhaps not, but once the ball gets rolling on, we need more relief. There's expectations get set, and, and you never know where that's uh, going to come out. Mm-hmm. Chori, uh, one of the issues that has uh, been getting a surprising amount of attention is the Senate filibuster. And you mentioned before that uh, people are getting used to Senate uh, arcane terms like reconciliation and what the bird rule means. They're also, I think everybody probably has a sense of what a filibuster is in a, you know, sort of a generic sense. But this is this is getting really serious as to what uh, what the filibuster is holding up and what would happen. You know, it's why be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Uh, Do you think that uh, the Senate will eventually change or even eliminate the filibuster? Not this Congress. Um, I think there are too many institutionalists on both sides of the aisle that cooler heads will will prevail. Um, we saw this with the debt limit, for example, and and a couple of other things where where there was a lot of sable rattling among Senate Democrats about eliminating the filibuster. Um, Mitch McConnell brought Republicans to the table to to avoid. So I, I don't think not this Congress. No. Do you think that the debt limit fix that they the, the workaround that they did could be a precedent? I think it's a it's a precedent for future debt limit squabbles when you've got unilateral control of government. All right. I, I, you've got 
Democrats who controlled the the House, the Senate and the White House. So there was a a, a political interest for Republicans to come to the table and allow that sort of weird workaround um, for the the the, the filibuster. Um, I would note that 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 legislation was not a, a they didn't change Rule 22 at all, which is where the filibuster lies. Um, that that rule 22 still survives intact in the Senate. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that that is indeed a template, but it's a template for a very unique situation. So, you know, six years from now, if, if Republicans control the House, the Senate and the White House, you know, maybe we'll deploy that again in order to get a debt limit increase through uh, when Republicans uh, are, are in control, for example, or if there is another opportunity again in the future where Democrats have unilateral control. But I don't see that as a uh, as a as a, a template for you will uh, in divided government. Well, um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and the Concord Policy staff is uh, all joining me in a uh, look back at 2021 and a look ahead to 2022. We'll be right back for more right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I am joined by Chris Colligan, Steve Robinson, Phil Smith, Tori Gorman, and Av Harris, an all-star panel from the Concord Coalition. And we're talking about 2021, what happened on fiscal and economic policy, and more importantly, what uh, what's coming up in, in 2022. Uh, you know, we always talk about the need for bipartisanship. So let me begin, uh, let me begin this segment by asking uh, Phil and, and Chris, do you see any prospects for some bipartisan cooperation in 2022? Phil? Um, I do. There have been fits and starts, right, throughout 2021, where we saw some little clues that there might be some nuggets for it. Um, obviously, 2020 is an election year, so that makes things a little bit uh, different. That uh, that 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 makes the timing of bipartisanship uh, a little bit more difficult. But what we've seen in 2021 is if you carve out certain plans with certain people, you can actually slip things through. <laughs> so so I have a little bit of hope, but not a lot of hope. Chris? Yeah, um, I, I think that's probably the smart way to look at it. I mean, we've seen a couple of things. Um, the Responsible Budgeting Act uh, did get introduced, and anything that's called a Responsible Budget Act is a good thing for people uh, like us to uh, to applaud. Uh, and that was bipartisan with uh, with uh, Jody Arrington and Scott Peters. So that's a that's a plus. Whether anything. Going back to just what Phil said, anything can actually happen in 2022. That's probably a stretch, but perhaps after an election year, perhaps a, a 23, depending on what the layout of the uh, of the land you know looks like at that point, it's a possibility. Also, uh, early on, we did have um, the Trust Act, which was a way for. Uh, uh, some some bipartisan cooperation in looking at all of the uh, the, the entitlement programs. Obviously, the biggest being the you know in the Social Security uh, uh, Medicare, but but that was also a bipartisan effort. Um, Mitt Romney, who surprisingly, if uh, it doesn't seem like he should be a freshman at anything, but he's a freshman senator this uh, this term, and uh, and of course. Uh, 
uh, the Joe Manchin, who has become um, famous or infamous, depending on how you view him, uh, he's uh, they, the two of them worked on this trust act. And that's a something that we can get behind. So there are efforts that are are positive uh, that can make a difference. Uh, I think, Bob, though, probably 2022 might not be the year that these things come to fruition, but they can be things that can be built on. Well, it's nice to think that there are at least some smoldering embers of uh, <laughs> bipartisanship that might uh, might spring to life uh, later on. Tori, you follow a lot of uh uh, news on Twitter. I mean, you, you follow a lot of people on Twitter, commentators right. on Twitter. Right. Uh, I, I, I do not. Uh, <laughs> but I'd like to know um, if you could tell our, our listeners, what are some of the who are some of the people that you follow on Twitter? And, and by the way, before you end, I should mention that a lot of people follow you. Oh. <laughs> oh, uh, it's not just a matter of who you follow. It's yeah. we, we should say that uh, you are a uh, an increasingly followed <laughs> Twitterer. <laughs> and then what's yeah. your Twitter and, and tell us your Twitter handle, Tori. Uh, <laughs> um, at Fiat Slugs uh, yeah. with the Z Slugs. Um, I went to University of California, Santa Cruz. Our modest mascot was the banana slug. So at Fiat Slugs is where I tweet. Um, my favorite person to follow is, is Ben Ritz. He tweets at, at Budget Ben. Uh, ben is... Uh, uh, one of the big thinkers at the Progressive Policy Institute. And I know you think you key off the word progressive, but actually Progressive Policy Institute's very center organization. And what I like about Ben is that he's very hooked into Congress. He's always got the, the breaking news, but more importantly, Congress listens to him. Um, he, he is an idea generator like you would not believe. He's young and creative and thoughtful. Um, he's a brilliant thinker. He's constantly putting ideas out in the Twitter sphere. And next thing you know, you see him in legislation up on Capitol Hill. So uh, if you've got if you've got one person to follow, I would follow at Budget Ben. Um, the other thing I follow is actually a hashtag. So it's a conglomeration of people and it's it's called tax Twitter. So it's the hashtag tax Twitter. And that's where you've got all the tax specialists in Washington, D.C. who are discussing, you know, really minute, arcane, you know, hard to understand. Uh, but it's it's where you get a lot of the really good uh, tax information. And that's where I go when I need to ask a question about taxes as well. I can put a question out there and throw in the, the hashtag uh, tax Twitter, and I get some great responses from some really smart tax practitioners. Steve, I know you follow a number of economic blogs. Um, what are some of your favorites? The top of my list would be, uh, there's a couple of professors at George Mason University, uh, uh, Tyler Cowan and, and uh, Alex Tabarak. They have a uh, blog called Marginal Revolution. And it is a really, really great blog. I, I honestly don't under, understand how they managed to, to put up as much material as they do. But I mean, there's everything from travel and book reviews and movie reviews. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a fun blog, but then they also get very heavy deep into economics. And generally what they do is they, they link to studies, new reports that come out, uh, interesting news articles, and they just, you know, they, they cover the whole ground of, of economics and, and as well as, you know, more interesting uh, things uh, related to, to politics and history. So it's, it's a very, very, very fun blog. I wanted to uh, turn to, to Av and, and Phil, you may weigh in on this uh, too, but Av, you, you, you took on the uh, enormous challenge of 
trying to communicate a fiscal responsibility message in a very difficult time right now. And I know you've been thinking about this. Um, you know, what what do you think it's most important for Americans to understand when we make the case as a public education organization? What are what are the real challenges of it? It's a loaded question um, because I think First of all, anything that you want to do has a context and it's related to the time in which you're doing it, which you, which you alluded to. So there's a real uh, challenge in that we are talking about numbers and facts and figures and math and you know balancing the budget, paying down the national debt, making sure that we enact a responsible fiscal policy and an economic policy that will uh, lead to more more job growth, um, and so these are very intellectual things. And um, you know what people think about when they think about politics and voting; those are all really emotional decisions. And so it, it's you have to be able to connect to people's um, emotions and um, and gain trust with people, and in order to then open their eyes and, and allow them to think about the things intellectually. And so what that breaks down to is we're having a conversation, which we really should be having with, with, with all Americans because it impacts every single person uh, who lives in this country. Um, and, you know, why it matters. Um, why does it matter to you when you look at your paycheck that you get every week, every two weeks, every month, whatever it is, and there's a certain amount taken out, you know, for the federal government, um, it, you know, it impacts you every week. Um, and, and so making the emotional connection to what we're talking about, plus what kind of uh, society we want to have, what kind of future we want to have for our children and grandchildren. And so it, it, that's the challenge that's, that's in front of us. And in some ways it hasn't changed, but what has changed is uh, the emotional climate that we're communicating it. And so we talk about, you know, you, you, for instance, your last question of, you know, is bipartisanship dead or is it alive? I mean, um, that, that's the problem is that we have so few things that we share together as a country and as a society. Everybody can listen to the media stream that they want personally. Um, you know, people, people we're, we're at a time in a pandemic where it's like dangerous to, to, to gather in large crowds of, of people who may not be uh, vaccinated and, and, and spreading disease. And so we have engineered and designed a society where you can get uh, you can live the reality that you see. It's like everybody's putting on their their uh, virtual reality goggles and that's the world that they see. And we have so few things that we share in common with others, especially those we disagree with. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not giving up, we're not giving up hope. We're not giving up on, on society and we're not giving up on this country because there are some things that impact all of us and, you know, like it or not, uh, federal budget policy and fiscal policy does impact all of us. And so what we have to do is to speak to people where they are and, and, and really drive home how this does impact you. And it impacts people from across the political spectrum of all uh, races and religions, uh, ethnic backgrounds, um, even people whose language is, uh, first language is not English. And so um, th that, that's the challenge, is talking to people where they are and breaking it down so 
that they understand the impact emotionally. I always go back to my journalistic training, which was what is news and news is who's doing what to whom and why should I care? So if we can answer that question for people and really drive home for them, what's happening, what's happening to you and why should you care? Then I think we'll, we'll get somewhere. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're you're onto something. You're right because a lot of times at the conference in the past thirty years, we've discussed um, comparing physical issues to termites in the walls versus wolf at the door. Right? Like if it's a wolf at the door, we normally come together as a country. If we're attacked, we come together and and we know how to respond. And it's these termites in the walls that always kind of send us for a loop on how we do things. And physical challenges are like those termites. And now the, the the challenge we have with COVID over the past couple of years, it's almost been a combination of termites and wolves, right? It's almost been like wolves and termites clothing. <laughs> you know, like uh, this, this has become a long, a long time, a long term issue for us with COVID. And I hope it gets behind us. And, and I think when we're Americans stand on physical issues at this point in time, they know I think they know in their gut, you know, that we're headed in the wrong direction over the long term on physical issues. And they know that unsustainable debts are generationally unfair. Uh, and they, and they, they care about the next generations, as, as I've said. Uh, but here recently, I think Americans are just overwhelmed and tired. Uh, and I think that's a, a sense that we all feel right now. And it reminds me of the, of the Twitter handle question you were answering, just you're asking us, Bob, just now, because one of my favorite uh, Twitter uh, people is Mark Goldwine over at CRFB. And, one, and, and the reason I want to give him a shout out is he actually changed his name during the COVID era to Mark Goldwine, get vaxxed, like get vaxxed is actually part of his Twitter handle. And I think it's such an important message because like when we had Dr. Jody Guest, a nationally renowned epidemiologist on facing the future, uh, you know, she reminded us that we have to get through this and, and, and why these issues are linked. We will never make any big progress on long term budget issues until we get through this economic mess caused by COVID. We're not going to get through the economic mess caused by COVID until we get through COVID and get enough people vaccinated. So all these things are connected and the communication of all these things is just absolutely vital. What's lacking in supply is political courage. You always used to see um, lawmakers in the past who were willing to uh, stand up to popular politically prevailing opinions on a point of principle or on a point of courage. And we did see examples of that um, this past year, especially. Now you talk about Mitt Romney, you talk about Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, people like that. But what I do see um, increasingly so on both sides, both the, the right and the left, the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, is that it's they're giving in to the instinct to just pander to the most extremes of their party um, because of this sort of um, this this customized information stream and loop that we've created, um, we can market to the individual in a much more fine tuned way. And and what's lacking is the compassion for other people, the caring about the impact of what you do and how that impacts other people. And I think it's leading politicians to do something they know is wrong, but. Politically, they're concerned with their own survival, and that's always been the case. But I think it's just more extreme now. And, and what I would hope for going forward is to see more examples of political courage for people taking stands on principle, even though it's unpopular. And, and that's why, in a way, I'm encouraged by what Senator Manchin did um, related to Build Back Better, because 
he he did uh, express something on principle. He did upset a lot of his party members, but he did it out of concern for what's going to happen to the federal budget, the deficit, and the national debt. And you know we don't see much of that anymore. Um, and I and I think that's the problem also with communicating this is we are an organization that really stands on principle at a time where that seems to be just uh, uh, tossed out the window by a lot of people who just want what they want. As Phil mentioned, the Santa Claus uh, syndrome of government, I want mine and that's all that matters. And we're all in this together. And so, so that's what makes our, our communications challenge um, all that much more difficult. Well, we'll keep plugging at it. And if anybody wants a, uh, a challenging political agenda, we have one for them and they can show all the political courage they want to. <laughs> And that's what we'll keep pushing for in 2022. That's all the time uh, we have for this week and this year. I want to thank uh, all of our guests, uh, Chris Culligan, Deputy Director, Steve Robinson, Chief Economist, Phil Smith, National Field Director, Tori Gorman, Policy Director, and Av Harris, the Communications Director. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Executive Director of the Concord Coalition. Tune in again next week when we'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future.